This guy's made over $100,000 selling books he got for free. Here's how to get started. What's up? What's up? Nick Loper here. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show because building assets is fun. This week, I'm excited to introduce the Side Hustle of Public Domain Publishing. This is the art and science of republishing classic literature, in a lot of cases, where the copyrights have expired and then earning passive royalties when your version of it sells. Because these works are so old, they're available online for free, but many Amazon shoppers and Kindle owners pay to have them delivered straight to their device. And I think any business where you can get your inventory for free is pretty compelling. Since 2013, Aaron Kerr has pocketed over $110,000 in royalties from this very part-time side hustle. You can see all his public domain projects over at timelessreads.com, including the title that, for a brief moment anyway, was the number one bestseller in the entire Kindle store. Stick around in this episode to hear how this business model works, Aaron's advice on what to publish and how to get it past Amazon's gatekeepers, and how to differentiate your public domain books from everything else that's out there. Notes and links for this one, plus the full text summary with all of Aaron's top tips from the call are at sidehustlenation.com slash Aaron, double A-R-O-N. The end of the year is fast approaching, so it might be time to start getting your books in order. For that, our sponsor, freshbooks.com, is here to help. FreshBooks is the invoicing and accounting software designed specifically for side hustlers and freelancers. You'll find cool expense tracking and profitability reports built right in, along with FreshBooks' famous rockstar support. Side Hustle Show listeners can try FreshBooks free for 30 days with no catch and no credit card required. Just hit up freshbooks.com slash side hustle to get started today. That's freshbooks.com slash side hustle. I'll be back with my top takeaways from this chat with Aaron after the interview. Ready? Let's do it. It's essentially finding a way to bring that content into new mediums, things like Kindle or Apple's bookstore. And there's just a lot of demand for those works. There's a lot of interest in these older classic works. And so it's a shorter way to get something published, but it also takes advantage of kind of that existing demand that people already have that are interested in these works and want a convenient and easy way to to read them and to purchase them at a low cost. So that's really the model. Primarily, my income comes from Kindle, although you know I've published in some of the other online bookstores as well and certainly seen some income from those as well. And anybody can do this. It's just a matter of finding a PDF or a Word document of some old book online and creating a, a Kindle version of it. Yeah, there's a variety of websites that host a lot of this public domain material. The vast majority of it got into a digital format through some kind of scanning process. So like when I built my first collection, which is an Anne of Green Gables series, it was literally going to a couple different websites, downloading the full text of these works, which was already available, and then I do some further formatting, proofreading, and those kind of things, but it's essentially taking materials that is already there. And you know, a lot of the business model is that convenience of just someone saying, oh, I could go out and search the web and find it, or I could pay 99 cents and get a whole collection that's easy to handle and good quality. And it's a very low barrier to entry. There's a lot of material, and it's just about finding the material you want to publish and having the understanding of you know how to get that published. What do you do to differentiate your... Anne of Green Gables from 
something that's already out there. Like there had to, maybe there wasn't, but like I would imagine there had to have been a Kindle version of that already in existence. Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of years before I started publishing, I had done some public domain material, like formatting of texts years ago, like probably 2004, 2005. I wasn't selling them directly, but I was kind of like assisting with another project online that was compiling some of these older texts. And so I had a little experience, I would say maybe around like 2009 or 2010, you know, Kindle was kind of like taken off. And I went to the Kindle store and I said, like, is this an opportunity? And I searched and I was like, man, there's just a lot of competition. And I just kind of assumed like, there's just too much competition. I wouldn't find a spot. I wouldn't know how to differentiate my work. So I just kind of gave up on it. And you can't be the only person who's stumbled upon this business. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So what really brought it back to me was my wife was reading the Anna Green Gables series to my daughters. She was reading it on Kindle and, you know, she was kind of working it through a book at a time and they'd buy one for 99 cents and some were good quality, some were really poor. So I, I said, well, let me put a collection together for you. And so, you know, I started compiling some of the text and I also, I did, I went to the store and I found somebody who was selling like the whole series for Kindle. They were selling it for like $1.99, had like nine books. And I, of course, right away, like anytime I see something like that in the store, you know, then and now I buy it because I'm like, I want to understand what they're doing and what's their quality like, you know, so I bought it and I checked it out and I said, okay, so they're selling a buck 99. They had a few formatting issues that I thought could be better, clean up some things, a couple things that would make the collection more readable to me. And I just said, I think I can make a higher quality and I think that I can offer it for 99 cents. So I'm going to like, undercut on price. And, you know, my goal is just like, here's something that's selling well. I'm going to try to take like a few different ways and improve on it and then release it. At that time, I was like, hey, if I could sell a few hundred of these a month and make a few bucks, you know, like it'd be a great little little side income. And this is, this is the collection that ended up hitting number one in all of Amazon. Yeah. The one other thing I did is there is another project online called Project LibriVox, and they produce recordings, so audio recordings, audiobooks of public domain material. And so they had these audiobook versions of all of the Anna Green Gables series, and it was pretty good quality. It was free, but a lot of people don't know that that exists. And so one of the things I did is I said, if you buy my collection for 99 cents, I also include links in my collection to download audiobooks for free to this entire collection And so I made a simple little website that I linked to from my Kindle book, and it just like laid out all the books in the series and had really simple links. Like if you wanted an MP3 format or audiobook format, you know, it was just a simple website that took me a few hours to build, but it was just kind of something that added value where people were like, oh, I'm going to pay 99 cents. I'm going to get all the books and access to all the audiobooks, even though like I didn't create the audiobooks, you know, I wasn't selling them, but it was just making it easier for people. You know, I think that that was, it was just a small thing, but it's, just something that adds a little value that kind of catches people's eye. And so with that collection, I was selling 20 a day, then 25 a day. And then I went from like maybe 30 a day on a Friday to the next day on a Saturday, I sold 2,100 and ended up selling over 6,000 in a day later that week when it kind of surged and went to number one. Wow. At 99 cents, you're making 35 cents a piece-ish? Yes. So I was making 35 cents each on those. So not huge, but making up for it in the volume. I mean, that's one of the amazing things about the Kindle platform and the way Amazon runs is if if they have something that is selling well, they want to sell, right? They're getting 65% of that sale. So they start marketing 
your book for you, you know, as it as it gains momentum. Amazon's suggesting on their website all the time. They're sending out emails to people with, hey, here's books you might like. So like Amazon's marketing machine just kind of picks up and helps drive sales, which is pretty cool. And you start to realize how massive the Amazon store is, the number of readers and, you know, purchasers that they can drive to a work if it's kind of taken off. So yeah, very much a volume game and very much relying on this existing platform. You know, hey, here's an, here's an existing audience of buyers and they're doing a lot of the heavy lifting on the on the marketing for you. So all this stuff is available for free, text, audio, all this stuff. But it's like, I will pay, as an Amazon customer, I will pay for the convenience to have it magically beamed to my device. And that's a no-brainer thing because it's like, I, I even will read PDFs. And it's like, ah, do you have this in Kindle version? Because I'm trying to zoom in. It's just, it would be worth it to pay the 99 cents or however much it is to to make that happen. And that's really interesting, the audio recordings as a point of differentiation, not even as an upsell, not even as like an opt-in bonus or anything, just like, look, these already exist. Let me just point you to them. Upon publishing, did you do anything proactive to give the Amazon algorithms a nudge or a push? Or was it just like, I want to capitalize on the existing search traffic for this book? I think a lot of it was the search traffic. I think... You know, nobody knows the exact behind-the-scenes algorithm, but I think Amazon gives at least some preference to new releases when they come out. So I think when you have a title that's selling at a buck ninety-nine and competing title comes out at ninety-nine cents, I think it maybe gets a little nudge and search for a little while. I tried to build keywords and just really kind of make the offer in my description. I don't do a lot of promotion on social media. I shared it with people. You know, to this day, I couldn't tell you the exact spark that made it go from tens a day to thousands a day. It certainly got picked up online. I think a lot of the homeschool community tends to like classic works. And so I had a lot of people come to the website and send me a form and be like, oh, I'm homeschooling and we're reading, the, I'm reading the series now to my kids. And so I think there's a, certainly a kind of a classical education group out there that really has, you know, sees a lot of value in these classic works and likes to use them. And so it's just kind of a natural fit for that kind of audience. If me or somebody listening to this, since this is all free public domain stuff, could I put together my own Anne of Green Gables collection and put it at 98 cents and just continue this downward (laughs) spiral or this race to the bottom on price? Or does Amazon say, look, we're good. We already have this covered. So yeah, Amazon has some rules about what can be published. It primarily centers, you know, we talked about like differentiating a little bit. It does center somewhat around differentiation. So so what their rules say is if a free version of a work exists, then you can't publish a paid version of that same work without some differentiation. So let's say that there's probably a whole bunch of versions of like A Christmas Carol. It's kind of a classic. There is a free version of A Christmas Carol in the Kindle store. So I can't come along and just say, okay, I'm going to release The Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens for 99 cents, and there's nothing different about it than some of these other free versions. So Amazon says to differentiate a work, it has to be a translation. It has to be annotated to a level where you've annotated their work or added an introduction or additional study material Or you can create your own illustrations. And those things are what they kind of consider differentiation. Okay, so translated, annotated, illustrated are different ways to differentiate your product versus what 
already exists out there. And that's what allows you to charge money for something if something already exists for free on Amazon, yes? Yeah, that's right. And I've always seen one of the benefits of kind of collections is that it it allows you to build something that's unique. For example, there might be a version of the Christmas Carol that's free, but right now I'm working on a Christmas collection that I plan to release for this holiday season. So I'll include a Christmas Carol, but I'll include quite a few other Christmas works as well, some of which are on the Kindle store and some of which aren't. And so a collection just kind of allows me to offer something that's unique. It's a unique collection of works, but also has kind of that greater value to the reader because it, you know, multiple books in one download keeps it simple. Did you know that roughly half of Side Hustle Nation hasn't started their side hustle yet? If that's you, I get it. Starting and building a business is tough. It takes more than just an idea. There are tons of moving parts, and it's a bit like trying to assemble your airplane in the middle of takeoff. Thankfully, our sponsor, Taylor Brands, is helping Side Hustle Show listeners make that leap and make it all a lot easier. Their comprehensive platform guides you through every step, making sure you have everything you need all in one place. Think of it like your behind-the-scenes partner for things like LLC formation, licenses and permits, getting an EIN, setting up your business bank account, bookkeeping and invoicing, insurance, logos, trademark protection, and a lot more. Taylor Brands helps you handle it all seamlessly. And to get you started, Side Hustle Show listeners get 35% off Taylor Brands LLC formation plans when you use our link. That's taylorbrands.com slash side hustle. Taylor Brands, like a tailor for your clothes, T-A-I-L-O-R-B-R-A. Ands.com slash side hustle. Start your business journey today with the help of Taylor Brands. When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search and hit the ground running with your new hire. But what if you could get rid of the search part and just get matched with qualified candidates? Well, now you can with our sponsor, Indeed. It's simple. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. The matching and hiring platform is trusted by over 3.5 million businesses worldwide to connect with great talent faster. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. For my next hire, I'm using Indeed to tap into a talent pool of 350 million unique monthly visitors. And what else is cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets. And how about this? Side Hustle Show listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Just go to Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Are you doing paperback versions of these or is it strictly Kindle? I do sell paperback versions of a few of the single books. Some of these longer collections, for example, the Anne of Green Gables or the 12 Years a Slave collection would be several thousand pages in paperback. But I have a few of the single books. And then so I've got a little book about how to draw that's adapted from an old drawing guide. It's a small little paperback. Took me a few hours to put together. Kind of, it was my first pass at putting together a public domain paperback. It's never like spiked, but it consistently for years has brought in forty to fifty dollars a month just by itself. Like it's it's just a steady little sales trickle that people like, and it's got good reviews. And so I don't see quite that level of kind of explosive growth in paperbacks, but I've had quite a few 
where I feel like it's just an ongoing purchase and it's been worthwhile for me. Yeah, you kind of create these little mini assets and each one could be a passive income stream on its own because once it's uploaded, I don't know, are you doing anything to upkeep or market these or it's just like they just sit out there and they make sales? Yeah, they really just sit out there. You know, there's probably like a marketing genius listening that would just know how to like, oh, I know how to take this to the next level and could market it, you know, and would have been retired at this point. You know, <laughs> but I see it as something that you that you create and that just kind of has that long tail of sales. Certainly they don't stay at that super high level, but they continue to sell. And what's nice is that when there are spikes in interest, so for example, Netflix probably two or three years ago now, released their own version of the Anna Green Gables series. And right away, sales of my collection spiked because people are checking out the show for the first time. They're getting it recommended to them on Netflix. And all of a sudden, they're like, hey, I'd like to go read the books. And so there was an anniversary of Lucy Maud Montgomery, you know, anniversary of the year that she passed away. And so the sales spiked again. So it's like these public domain works kind of stay in the public's interest. And as interest surges for one reason or another, then sales tend to follow. Gotcha. Gotcha. And a follow-up on the paperback thing. You mentioned, I'm going to link to these existing audio recordings as a point of differentiation, but have you ever gone down the path of creating your own audiobooks? Because I mean, 35 cents on a, on a Kindle sale, yeah, I'll take it. But on an audible trial bounty or audiobook sale, like it could be significantly higher. Yeah, I know that there are, certainly you'll see a lot of public domain material in the audible store. It's not something that I've done yet. I don't know that I, to me, you know, to read like a full novel, it's probably more than like for a first experiment of audiobooks I'd want to do. I do know that there are people that are doing it. There's a guy named Jim Weiss who I've interacted with a little bit and who's kind of built this model. He records his own audiobooks. He really sells them almost primarily through his own website where he can handle the transaction, keep a higher percentage. And he's done very well. Not everything he does is public domain, but a significant portion of it is. So it's something that I think that there's a market for. And I know there's a market for it. It's just not something I've tackled yet. But working on a poetry collection, like a kid's poetry collection with my kids, where we'll read through these old classic collections and we'll pick out poetry that I'm going to put together into this classic kid's poetry collection. And I'm considering doing an audio for that because it's not quite the same volume of recording, plus it's reading poetry to kids, which is just really fun. So, Now, how do you figure out what is coming into the public domain? Like, How do you choose a new project to tackle here? So the current copyright length in the United States is 95 years. So, you know, 95 years after a work is published, essentially at the end of that 95th year, it enters the public domain. So kind of the rule of thumb, if you're looking at U.S. works, you can subtract 96 because you take into account that end of year. So it's 2019, you subtract the 96. That means everything published 1923 or earlier in the United States is in the public domain. Because of changes like some copyright laws, there was a period of quite a few years where it had been 75 years and then it got extended to 95. So in that interim period, no new material was entering the public domain for a while, which was kind of a bummer. But this year, actually, we kind of caught up to that 95 years. And so now every year on January 1st, a new batch of content enters the public domain, which I think is really exciting. 
is there a scramble like on is there a scramble on January first yeah. to like in, in your niche to go and publish as much as you can? I don't know how much there is a scramble. I mean, I certainly there was a fairly prominent work by Agatha Christie that entered the public domain on January first this year. I published it to the Kindle Store and the Apple Store on January first. I certainly saw some competition, but I think that it's man, there's so much material entering every year. So as we're coming up at the end of this year. We could look for like 1924 bestsellers to see what might be available in January next year. Yep, that's exactly what I did last year. You know, I would do some Google searches like classic or well known books published in 1923. So you could start, you know, if you wanted to look at stuff that would be coming to January 1st, look at works from 1924. There's a lot of material certainly to be published. Okay. And in 2111, if I'm doing the math right, buy buttons will enter the public domain if, oh, nice. if we're still around. <laughs> Try to think of like, gosh, you know, I never never even considered that. Like, oh, my copyright expires or something down the road. I guess it makes sense. Any of your students doing this internationally with either publishing to UK Amazon stores, Canada Amazon stores with works that were published there? Or am I overthinking this? Yeah. You know, when you post a work, a public domain work, you can publish it to the Kindle stores around the world. So I publish in a variety of stores. There are copyright laws vary by country. So in the U.S., it's 95 years from publication. Most countries base it not on like years from publication, but like lifespan of the author. So it's the author's life plus 50 years is common. I think that's what the rule is in the UK. So it's something to be aware of. Luckily, Amazon knows all those rules. So like when you submit a public domain work, they'll often have you say who the author is and what year it was published. And then they'll kind of let you know which ones it's it's eligible for. The bulk of my income has come from the US store. I had a Beatrix Potter collection who was from the UK and actually ended up publishing that early in the year, right after a lot of her works became public domain in the UK. And so that sold very well over there. That's probably my best-selling international work. Is the timing super important, or can you just go back in history to find older stuff that people have missed for whatever reason? Or what else might go into potential product research here? Yeah, so I, I do a variety of things. If you walk into any Barnes & Noble store, you will see sections of, of public domain material, of classics. You'll see single books. You'll see these big 12-inch wide sets that they sell shrink wrap. You know, it's like eight classic books, like 50 bucks. So I look at stores. Anytime I'm in bookstores, I tend to take pictures and be like, oh, what are they highlighting? What are they selling? I've asked bookstore people before, you know, like what classics do people like and people buy? There's places online that I search. There's a site called Project Gutenberg which has a lot of public domain material. And you can search there based on like number of downloads. So you can see what people are the most interested in. That helps. And then I've also found that Hollywood is constantly making movies based on public domain works. And so I will do kind of pre-searching to find out like what movies based on public domain works are coming out and then think about how to align that. You know, So like the year that I published my 12 Years a Slave. I, I published two versions. I published just the standalone work, which is a 
pretty amazing work. I just kind of discovered it by accident one day. But then I also published a, like a collection of American slave narratives that featured it. So the year that I published those was the year that that film came out, did really well, had some well-known actors, eventually won Best Picture. And all of that interest in the movie and that story drove a ton of sales for that collection. Okay, interesting. For the standalone version, did you have to do anything to annotate, differentiate, or did it not exist on Amazon? So they said, yeah, you can publish this. Yeah, that was kind of interesting to me. That work was not as well known as some other kind of works from that period, like slave narrative type works. So I discovered it, was kind of reading some information about it, and then went to Amazon and found there was no free version. So, I mean, that single book was literally probably like, it took me probably an hour. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I designed a cover and did a little proofreading, but really simple and straightforward, sold it for 99 cents. My collection overall sold better, but just that single version was several thousand dollars by itself. The single sold really well on Apple's bookstore also, which was kind of interesting to me, but I got, you know, a lot of downloads there of it. So you will find those things where, you know, a work has kind of slipped through the cracks and maybe there's not a free version. It's nice when you find them. <laughs> that's a fantastic <laughs> hourly rate. Yeah. <laughs> now you got me thinking like, so that's the, the Google search was upcoming movies or future movies in production based on classic works. Yeah, there's like this 12 Years a Slave example. There's got to be other stuff like that. Yeah, so like last year, Disney did the version of the Nutcracker. And so I published the original Nutcracker in the Kindle store. Unfortunately, the movie didn't do great. So it didn't, I mean, it sold, but it, you know, it wasn't quite as, as high as I'd hoped. There's a version this year of Little Women coming out, which is one of our family's like just favorite works and favorite authors. And so there's kind of a high visibility version of that movie with, you know, really well-known actresses in it that's coming out this December. So if I can get the Christmas collection and that done in time, I'd like to release a version of that. I might do a collection of like Louisa May Alcott, but I also was just thinking about putting together just a good version of Little Women, just paperback and see see how I do there. So, Well, let's talk about that production process and the time that goes into it. So what does that look like from, I mean, I've been through the Kindle process a few times and the formatting can get a little wonky, you know, there's a little bit of a learning curve to it, especially if you're pasting from PDFs and stuff like that sounds, sounds like it would take me longer than an hour. I'll put it that way. Sure. Yeah. The vast majority of works that you find online of public domain, you don't have to go from a PDF. You're typically going from like a text file or an HTML file. HTML, for those that don't know, is kind of like the language of that's used to create websites. And it's also kind of behind the scenes of a Kindle book. Basically, everything that you see in a Kindle book is stored with HTML. It's just the way that kind of the formatting of the book works. And so most works that I've wanted to publish, I've been able to find pretty high quality versions of. There's always some editing and some proofreading. I mentioned that a lot of these works were created by scanning old books. And so sometimes you get errors in that, but the errors tend to be consistent. Maybe the font in the book made the look like something else, like a different set of combinations, but it tends to, if it's wrong in one place, it's probably wrong with that same pattern. You know, So I, I do some kind of search and replace. I find common errors and can clean up a lot pretty quickly. But you know, there are, as I said, a lot of really high quality, just totally free editions where it's minimal editing and it's really just more about the combination than the presentation. 
Okay, and so you're doing this in, like you're dumping this all into a Word doc on your machine so you can kind of manipulate and edit as needed. Yeah, you can build them into Word. I teach people how to kind of use headings as a, a structure within the documents to separate chapters and works. And then when you do your conversion, the Amazon's tools will pick up in that structure and kind of give you that built-in like table of contents and navigation. Oh, this isn't something you have to code yourself or use Word's table of contents. You can say, Amazon, just just do it for me, please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so those kind of things are helpful. There's some shortcuts, just kind of speed the process along. And so, and then I tend to use, you can upload to Amazon's Kindle system and kind of use their online proof reading tool, but they also have this Kindle proofreader that you can install on your local computer and it lets you see your compiled work and kind of test it. And you can test it on like, say, okay, show me it on like an e-ink and now show me, let me see how it looks on a Kindle Fire. So, you know, it's a pretty good testing tool just to make sure you don't have any funny formatting issues. Yeah. Is that the bottleneck in the process, like doing this proofreading editing formatting stage? That probably for most works is where the most time is spent and just getting that formatting right you know, and make sure there aren't any issues. Certainly there's a kind of a selection process of what I want to include, but I think a lot of it is just kind of getting that formatting. And it's something that you get faster at and better at as you practice it some. And so... Have you ever hired that out? I haven't yet. I had done it as kind of another side business for a while, like for other people, like they would bring me a book that they would want to publish and I would format it and give them a Kindle file. I've considered kind of outsourcing parts of my process Ultimately, I just enjoy it a lot. And to me, like, you know, it's just some of the craft of it. And so I enjoy it. I haven't outsourced it yet. Maybe I should, but uh, I've just kind of enjoyed the process of building. No, that's fine. I was just curious. I was beating my head against the wall trying to get the formatting right for the progress journal. Because like all these like blank lines and kind of fill in the blank pages and prompts. And it was like the margins are messed up over here. And I went to Fiverr and found this book formatting pro and it was like the best money that i ever spent and then she sent me a message back where she was like oh i like listen to your show while i'm editing these books <laughs> so i was like oh this is awesome <laughs> nice you know it's like kindle depending on the device the formatting can be a little bit basic at times and it can be a little frustrating and so it's kind of the simpler the better as far as what the formatting you can use so how about cover design do you try and stay true to the original cover of the of the book if you're allowed to do that i've used kind of aspects of old covers and of existing illustrations at times so the beatrix potter cover i just used like various illustrations and kind of put them together into a single cover i'm far from a graphic designer like a true graphic designer just make me look bad but i've got enough it skill and understanding that i've done my cover design myself in other places I do think that that was one of the things that helped my Anna Green Gables collection is literally the only financial investment I made for that collection was I, I browsed this stock photography website and found like this great kind of close up of this red haired girl that just looked like Anna Green Gables to me. I just thought it was like the perfect image. I think I paid like $17 for that image. I've, you know, like I've never, that seemed like a lot of money at the time. I was like, oh, 17 bucks. Okay. Like, okay. I'll pay it. Sure, it's, it's all speculative. Am I going to earn it back? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm starting in the hole here, but it was just a good image and it ended up working. It was kind of funny because then this other Anna Green Gables collection that I had been kind of like trying to compete with, they updated their cover like a couple months later and they used like 
the same image like they had gone. And so, you know, I mean, you get those copycat things, but I just, I don't know, I, I kind of tinker around a little bit and just find a design that I like that I think is eye-catching at some level. So, As somebody who's going through this uploading process in, in kdp.amazon.com is where you'll find your kind of self-publishing dashboard for this stuff, they're going to be presented with a question that asks if they want to enroll this book in KDP Select, which is Amazon's exclusivity program. And you mentioned, hey, I syndicate some of these over to Apple Books. But like, what's your take on KDP Select as a potential marketing benefit for people interested in this business? So I've published my own book in, in the Kindle store years ago and used Kindle Select. I think it has some value for your own works. Unfortunately, they don't, well, I'll say just they don't allow you to enroll public domain works in Kindle Select. So, oh, so it's not even a question. <laughs> right. Not a question. It does preserve the ability to do it in multiple platforms. And also there's this concept of price matching, where which sometimes you can use to your advantage. Like, for example, you can't make a book free on Kindle. You, you know, you can make it 99 cents, but that, like, that's the lowest price you can choose. But if you post that same work to Apple, where you can make a book free, often Amazon will like price match. Like They'll see that you're selling it on Apple and it's free, so then they'll make the Amazon one free. And it's just a way to like drive sales and market. So maybe a benefit of not having just on one platform and you just get to reach readers across different platforms too. So, Okay. But the majority of your stuff is paid, yes? Yeah. Everything is paid at this point. I've occasionally bumped works to free just for promotion, but everything that I have at this point in both Kindle and the Apple stores is is paid. Okay. Any other platforms that you're syndicating this stuff to? I sell on Barnes & Noble's platform. They were a little more profitable for a while. They still allow public domain works. They do allow you to make your work free. I just don't see them. I mean, it's it's been a little while since I looked at the numbers. I had all the you know, like the whole breakdown of the ebook marketplace. <laughs> I actually teach through that a little bit in my my course where I talk about public domain publishing, but they're just not a huge part of the market. So certainly Kindle is the lion's share. I think Apple is worthwhile, and you know the paperback is worthwhile, but Amazon is where I've found most of my sales. Upon publishing, at least for you know, in my world, it's like all about collecting reviews. I got my launch team and I'm going to, you know, try and create all this buzz around launch. It sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like this is a little more of a relaxed process for you. Like, I'm going to create this thing. Like, you don't have an audience of Anne of Green Gables fans. It's like, you're just kind of putting it out there and seeing what happens. Or is there a concerted launch effort to drive traction and reviews early on? I try to push to the point where I at least have some reviews. I mean, I think a lot of people will pause, even if it's, it looks like a great deal. You know, if there's no reviews on a work. Especially one that's been around for 100 years. It's like, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> so when I originally posted my Anna Green Cables collection, like when it took off, when it hit the number one spot on Kindle, it had four reviews. So I don't see it as a total limiting factor. I mean, you've got to get something, but if there are, are a few reviews and something looks quality and the, the reviews are good, then I think people, if they think it's a good deal and they're interested in it, people will, will check it out. And I've seen other examples of that too, of, of other people who have published public domain works being able to drive a lot of sales without a ton of reviews. Well, now I'm seeing that 12 Years a Slave plus five American Slave Narratives has over 6,000 reviews. Are all of these 
for you, and they're selling the hardcover of this for four bucks. This is an interesting one. It looks like, man, this is flying off the shelves if it's got that many ratings. <laughs> yeah, so Amazon tends to, you know, like if you publish your own book and you've got a Kindle version and you're also selling paperback, it combines those onto a single item page. And it kind of does the same thing with public domain. What's interesting is like, Sometimes it's not exactly the same work. So like I've got my 12 Years of Save collection. And like you said, there's a paperback version or a hardback. But if you go and click over to like that version, it's probably just 12 Years of Slave. It's not the whole six works that my collection includes. And so it's just one of the quirks about the way Amazon works and kind of combines these works that it it sees, it matches as being the same. So at one point, I, my Kindle collection wasn't grouped at all with those other works, and it, it got several hundred reviews, but certainly that number has inflated as they've kind of grouped them together onto a single item page. So. Oh, okay. Gosh. When, and now that I'm clicking around on this page, it says, see all 1127 formats and editions. So clearly, you weren't the only person with the idea to publish this, but somehow yours has become the most prominent or the, or the one that shows up on the, as a default. Yeah, Amazon does some of that searching, you know, where it finds common things in the title and by the same author. And so it will it will group some of those things. I mean, one interesting thing that I haven't really mentioned, you know, I've said that you can adapt and republish, but I've also renamed works, mentioning that little drawing book that I had republished as a paperback. And the original title was What to Draw and How to Draw It. So I just, I put on the beginning, I but the main title was like learn to draw, which to me is like a good Kindle term, right? Like people want to learn how to draw. So they, you know, they go to Kindle and say, I want to learn to draw. So I just, I use the title of that book. I say, learn to draw. And then the subtitle is what to draw and how to draw it. So same work. I just changed the title to try to be a little more like sensitive to what people are searching for. And I think that's helped it. So that's another small way that you can kind of differentiate a work. So you mentioned the Christmas stuff coming up, the Little Women collection coming up. Any other future projects that you're excited about? And we'll, we'll give you some lead time before we publish to make sure nobody rips off your ideas. <laughs> yeah, those two are kind of the main collections I'm working on right now. I do have this poetry project that I've been working on with my daughters. I have four girls, and so we will read poetry and read classic poetry for kids, and we'll pick things out. We've got this big collection of poems that we kind of like and have read, and that's something that may not get published until till next year, but certainly it's something that I'd like to release for Kindle and for paperback as well. Another thing we're doing there is we're bringing in some public domain like images and illustrations that go with the poems because public domain isn't just written works. It's audio, it's illustrations. You know, there's all these different ways that material can be used in different business models and different uses. So it's pretty broad. Yeah. Someone had shared something at one point of like, you know, the government archives of materials they maybe produced for like military calisthenics or something. It's like, okay, maybe we could turn this into a fitness poster or, you know, it's just like some pretty creative stuff that once you kind of get searching, you go down this rabbit hole, you realize, well, there's, there's quite a bit of stuff. I don't have to completely reinvent the wheel. Maybe it will be a faster product creation process to look at what's already out there and then do that annotation, translation, illustration, kind of like adapt it to make it unique enough where you can hit publish on it. Yeah, I'm constantly amazed at the ways that people are using public domain content. I got like a new iPhone yesterday and I, I signed up for like Apple's like arcade service, you know, with their new like gaming service. 
And one of the games on like kind of the front page of Apple Arcade was this game called Dear Reader. And it's kind of this like word shuffle and like word problem solving game kind of, I don't know exactly how to describe it, but it's all based on public domain content. It's full of all these different quotes from public domain works and sections of chapters and you have to like shuffle words around. And it's just interesting to me, like, oh, I never thought of that, but it's just, it's totally based on public domain works that people know and using that as content. Very interesting stuff. Well, you can check Aaron out at timelessreads.com. He's got all his stuff listed over there. You can see all the different projects that he's tackled so far. And he's got timelessreads.com slash hustle. He's actually teaching a course if you want to dive deeper into this business model and see what everything, everything that goes into it. Anything else people will find over there at timelessreads.com slash hustle? Yeah, um, I will go ahead and link to a couple resources or tools that I kind of share in the course. So, you know, if people are interested in learning about public domain and kind of, you know, want to get their feet wet or learn a little bit more, I'll link to a couple things there. Yeah, you've, you've got my gears spinning, which I know is the mark of a, of a strong episode. So, Aaron, very much appreciate you joining me. Timelessreads.com. Let's wrap this thing up with your number one tip for Side Hustle Nation. I guess my number one tip is... Be willing and patient enough to find a side hustle that is really a good fit for you and that works for you. I've done a variety of kind of like side hustles over the years. And, you know, I had some that were like kind of work to an extent. I've had ones that like completely flopped or like built a website and offered a service and I literally got no sales, you know. like, <laughs> And so it was kind of an understanding of just like finding something that worked for me. Like ultimately, I decided I want to work where I create something and I can get paid for it over and over and not have to work on someone else's schedule. And so like when it finally fell together, it was like, oh, this is like a mix of the skills I have, the way I want to run a business and how I want to spend my time. And then when it fell into place, I was just like, oh, that feels so great. I totally believe in the side hustle, even if you're working a full-time job, which I am. But yeah, man, just keep keep pushing at it and find something and, and make it work. Do you see it becoming a full-time thing? Do you want it to become a full-time thing? I think that potentially it could be a full-time along with maybe some other areas. If I did some additional publishing, I'd, I'd love to write some more. I like teaching online and you know with an online course. And so I could see it being a big kind of a significant stream in a collection of streams that might allow me to work for myself. So, Well, very cool. Be willing and patient enough to find a side hustle that works for you. Very happy to hear that you have found that in public domain publishing. Aaron, thanks again for joining me and we'll catch up with you soon. This edition of the Side Hustle Show is brought to you by FreshBooks.com. Here's side hustler turned full-time entrepreneur Grayson Bell on why he likes FreshBooks. What's up, Side Hustle Nation? This is Grayson from iMarkInteractive.com. I run a WordPress maintenance and support company that helps bloggers and site owners get started and run on WordPress. I've been using FreshBooks for a little bit over a year now, and it has made my business so much easier to run. I can bring all my expenses in automatically from PayPal, my credit cards, my bank account. I can send recurring invoices to my customers on a regular basis without having to think about it. The payment options are awesome. I've saved thousands with PayPal fees by using their PayPal for business setup. Their support is great. Their interface is easy to use. I've been a fan of FreshBooks, and I'll continue to be a fan of FreshBooks. It's streamlined to help my business grow. Visit freshbooks.com slash side hustle to start your 30-day free trial today. That's freshbooks.com slash side hustle for your free 30-day trial.
If you travel a lot for work or for vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time and you're still paying for that privilege. But hosting on Airbnb means you don't have to leave your home sitting empty when you're away. Being an Airbnb host isn't just a way to earn some extra cash. It's a chance to share your space and make a guest's vacation all the more memorable. You might be thinking, eh, maybe my place isn't the right fit, but don't write it off just yet. Your potential Airbnb might be right in front of you. Whether it's a spare room or even your entire home, there's an opportunity waiting. Airbnb turns your home into a practical and even profitable venture. We just got back from a family trip to Hawaii where we stayed in a great Airbnb, but our place back home could have been a highlight to somebody else's travels, and we could have used the extra cash to help pay for the trip. So if you're curious about hosting on Airbnb, find out how much your space could be worth by visiting airbnb.com slash host. Once again, that's airbnb.com slash host. All right, my top three takeaways from this call with Aaron. Number one is to think value add. Remember to publish public domain work and charge for it. There needs to be some differentiation, annotation, illustration, translation. And it sounds like Aaron's primary tactic of differentiating is by offering collections, like bundles of related work under one listing. And in any case, I think this is a low overhead way to break into the self-publishing world without having to crank out 30,000 words of your own content. Maybe you pair this with the low content book strategy from episode 339 and build up a little portfolio. And again, each product you create has the chance to be this little mini asset sitting out in the marketplace and potentially earning passive royalties. That's takeaway number one. Think about how you're going to differentiate, how you're going to add value. Takeaway number two is to move fast. It was interesting to hear Aaron's strategies for what upcoming projects he's tackling and then trying to be first to market with new material, new old material, I guess. And since, at least in the U.S., it sounds like copyright expirations are based on the calendar year, I imagine there's a flurry of activity in this space in January, February. Maybe you can start laying the groundwork for some projects now. I was originally thinking this would be perfect side hustle for somebody already interested in classic literature, but now I'm wondering if that might actually slow you down, like if you get sucked into reading something instead of just getting it ready for Kindle. I should add here as well that there's a learning curve to Kindle formatting, but once you get the hang of it, it's not super complicated, and Amazon has made it a lot easier to do through their own online interface. So that's takeaway number two, move fast. And takeaway number three is to think beyond books. We mentioned at the end, classic literature is just one type of public domain material. If you take the broad view of this business model, it's a way to accelerate product creation. Instead of starting completely from scratch, you can look at it as perhaps having the raw materials or the building blocks already in place, and then you can do your decorative finishes or your points of differentiation on top of it. Think of Amazon as a marketplace where the cash is already flowing, right? And then your job becomes to get some of that flowing to you through building your own products that people want. That's takeaway number three, to think beyond books. The books thing just scratches the surface of this public domain business model, which is fascinating to me. And the barriers to entry are so low, I'm really excited to hear what you do with it. Once again, notes and links for this episode, along with the full text summary with all of Aaron's top tips from the call, are at sidehustlenation.com slash Aaron. And a big thanks to Vincent Puglisi from episode 254 for the intro to Aaron. That's it for me. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, let's go out there and make something happen. And I'll catch you in the next edition of The Side Hustle Show. Hustle on. 